The following message is by Pastor Steve Lee of Emmanuel Community Church. More information about the ministry of Emmanuel Community Church can be found online at www.emmanuelcommunity.org. So today we'll wrap up this very brief series on the Holy Spirit. Um, really realizing that I could actually extend this thing out to probably a dozen messages. There's actually still so much more that I wish to say. I didn't actually intend this to be a series. It was originally just going to be one sermon on the Holy Spirit, and it kind of morphed into three. If you've been here at ICC, though, you know that that's not that unusual for me to kind of get really caught up in a, in a certain topic and then get kind of carried away with adding messages to it. Uh, but starting next week, we will jump into the Sermon on the Mount and uh, launch into that. I'm a little nervous about that because um, <laughs> if I'm not careful, I think we could be on Sermon on the Mount for the next five years. So, so I've got to try to pace myself in a way. They're just, I, I find Matthew 5 to 7 to be one of the richest texts in the Bible, filled with so much of God's wisdom for us. And so, so there's so much that I'd like to unpack with you in that text. Um, but we'll wrap up today with this topic of the gifts of the Spirit. I'm sure uh, most of you are aware of this huge cargo ship named the Ever Given that veered off course and was grounded in the Suez Canal. And for a few weeks, it brought, blocked all uh, maritime travel between the Mediterranean Sea and the Red Sea. And I was just struck by the sheer enormity of this vessel. I mean, it is gigantic. Uh, it, it basically looks like a floating city. Uh, And you've also probably, if you know about this news story, also have seen this image of an excavator trying to dig out this enormous vessel. And it looks so ridiculously small compared with this ship that it was trying to rescue that it actually became the butt of a lot of jokes and memes on the internet that you've probably seen. And so for days Uh, this excavator labored to try to free the ship with little, if any, success. And then, as a result of that, the global concern began to mount as people realized pretty much all the goods that are supposed to come to America and all these other places are going to be shut down because of this one stuck vessel. Um, In the end, it was the power of an unusually strong tide known as a spring tide when the sun and the moon and the earth are just in a certain alignment that creates this really massive tide that ended up freeing the ship. And that picture of that excavator, I think, uh, trying to free the ship is, uh, to me, I think, a really uh, um, appropriate picture of what the Christian life is like, lived, empowered by the flesh alone, without the Spirit's help. And that powerful gravitational pull of the moon and the sun that raised that tide and freed that vessel, I think, is a wonderful picture of the Holy Spirit that can enable us to live the kind of life that God requires. And as I said in the uh, first message, as critical as the Holy Spirit's power is for effective Christian living, um, what is so remarkable is that God does not force himself on us, but he invites us to seek the Spirit. And it's this gentleness of God that to me is one of the most surprising aspects of his character. The way that he patiently waits for our willful surrender to the things that he desires of us. He doesn't jam it down in our throats or force himself upon us, regardless of how important these things may be for us. Jesus describes the work of the Spirit as the mystery of a wind blowing through trees. And we can't see that wind with our eyes, but we can feel and experience and recognize that the wind is present by the way that the branches of that tree will bend and sway. And you get from the reaction of the trees the real sense of the power of that wind. And Jesus says, in the same way, that is how the Spirit is among you. There is this mystery of how the Spirit works that you cannot harness, that you cannot predict that you cannot control. And the clear message of the Bible is that the Spirit isn't an impersonal force that we can manipulate according to our will. 
The Spirit is the third person of the Trinity. The Spirit is God, and we are the ones who are invited to surrender to the Spirit's will. And I think it's precisely that fear of losing control that makes the Spirit-filled life actually really scary to many of us. Because the truth is, whether we acknowledge it or not, we want to call the shots. We want to live our lives on our own terms. We want to pick and choose the areas that we give over to God's leadership in our life while maintaining control of the places where we don't want God to touch. The last message, I talked about how the Spirit-filled life is so critical to our ability to do the work of ministry that God expects out of all of us. And the primary way that the Spirit does that empowering work is through the gifts that he pours out to the church. And I realized today, actually, I wanted to cover both healing and prophecy But just getting into prophecy, I realized it was going to be a really long message. And so I had to actually cut out the whole healing part. But I would love to talk about uh, healing as well and this idea of, like, you know, words of knowledge and wisdom and and, and all of these other spiritual gifts, the spirit uh, discernment of different spirits. Um, There's so much that we can explore there, okay? Uh, But we're going to today, unfortunately because of time, only focus on this particular gift of prophecy today. Back when I was in high school, I had this phase where I really was reading avidly about other religions and cults. And it was because I wanted to compare them with the claims of Christianity, basically so that I could better defend my faith. And uh, one particular cult uh, that caught my interest was this cult called Transcendental Meditation or TM for short. It was started by this guy, Maharishi Mahesh Yogi, and it was really popular in the 1950s through the 70s. And TM was primarily about meditation, um, but the Maharishi made this extraordinary claim that he could teach his followers how to levitate and fly. And disciples came from all over the world to this utopian society that he started in Fairfield, Iowa, of all places, rural Midwest town. And some paid thousands of dollars for the advanced classes on how to fly and levitate. And these classes were held in a secret room. No one was allowed in there other than the participants, and it was blocked out from public viewing. Um, What confused me about Transcendental Meditation, or TM, uh, was that I could not understand how a movement like this could possibly survive. Because it seemed like there were only two possibilities for TM claims. Either there were a group of people in a room in rural Iowa who were flying (laughs) behind closed doors, Or the same group of people discovered really quickly that it was actually all a big hoax. And then why wouldn't you abandon it immediately? And why wouldn't TM die after just a couple weeks? But since TM, or Transcendental Meditation, had actually survived for decades, it made me wonder, could there actually be people who have learned how to fly? Because if that wasn't happening, why would this cult continue? Well, it turns out no one was actually flying. Uh, Claire Hoffman uh, grew up in this commune in Iowa because her mother uh, moved her family into there. And so as a child, she grew up in this community, and she was enchanted by this belief that her mother learned how to fly. But the magic was ruined for her at the age of 9 or 10 when she attended a demonstration of this, what they would call yogic flying. And in an interview, Hoffman says, it was the sort of funny frog hop that they were doing across the room. For me, that moment of seeing this sort of awkward, ugly jumping, as opposed to this incredible levitation that as a kid had imagined, was a first moment for me of doubt. 
Arya Siegel, who was a teacher in this cult, uh, also eventually became disillusioned and walked away from it and wrote this book called Transcendental Deception. And in it, he writes, Although I devoted well over four hours a day to TM for well over a year, I did not experience any, anything Maharishi promised. Nor from what I could tell did anyone else. What was called levitation was a total joke. While most people think of levitation as hovering in midair, in the TM world, it consisted of mostly younger, more athletic siddhas hopping around on their butts on thick, dense foam, pretending they were flying through the air. But before, before long, we saw that we had been lied to by TM and that the only thing achieved by, quote, yogic flying was that you could cause damage to your knees. I eventually had a knee replacement. I left the cult. Many people were not so lucky. Why do I share this story with you? I share it because I suspect that some of you have a similar uneasiness when it comes to what has traditionally been called the supernatural gifts of the Spirit. And maybe what you have observed or even participated in in the charismatic movement has left you feeling a bit uneasy and wondering the same thing. Are there really people who receive revelations from God and speak in spiritual languages and can heal the sick miraculously? Or is this all just wishful thinking or maybe more worrisomely, a satanic deception? There are some spiritual gifts that I think the church accepts universally, such as teaching, giving, uh, hospitality and helps and encouragement. But there are these eight gifts that are listed in 1 Corinthians 12 or 7 to 10 that have been labeled as supernatural. So if you look at that passage, it's not to each one the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. To one, there is given through the Spirit a message of wisdom. To another, a message of knowledge by means of the same Spirit. To another, faith by the same Spirit. To another, gifts of healing by that one Spirit. To another, miraculous powers. To another, prophecy. To another, distinguishing between Spirits. To another, speaking in different kinds of tongues. And to still another, the interpretation of tongues. And some believe that while the early church experienced all of these supernatural gifts, the Spirit no longer works in the same way today. And those who take this view have typically been labeled as what is, what's called cessationists, cessationists. Others believe that these gifts have never left the church and they actively practice them in their worship today. But I think there is a third group that we can describe of Christians that are caught in the middle, who are open to the possibility that these gifts are still available today, and yet for whatever reason have never actually sought them out or pursued them. In other words, you may be theologically open, but functionally cessationist. And here's the thing is, I suspect that probably a lot of you here at ICC would fall into that category. You're open, but for whatever reason, you've chosen not to really pursue or explore these gifts. Um, let me say this. My struggle with the cessationist position is that I just don't see much biblical evidence for it. I, I don't think purely constructed from Scripture itself, there is a strong case to be made of the ceasing of these spiritual gifts. that I don't see where it really clearly says that they will be temporary and that they were intended only for the first generation of believers. Some have argued that once the books of the Bible were completed, there was no longer any need for supernatural gifts like prophecy, and that's why God ceased them. Others have argued that the supernatural gifts were intended to help the prophets to lay the foundation of the first believers, the early church, and therefore once the apostolic age was done, the gifts ended as well because they were no longer necessary. Others just think of it more empirically like scientists and say, just look at the data as at least they see it. And they say, the things that we see recorded in the book of Acts and other places in the New Testament just aren't happening today. 
What we see in the charismatic movement doesn't reflect what we see in the book of Acts. And therefore, just based purely on the data, the argument is these gifts have ceased. Um, so I, I just want to play all my cards here and say I, I don't believe in this cessationist position. I do believe that the Holy Spirit continues to give all of his gifts to the church to this very day. The main text that the cessationist argument does tend to focus on is 1 Corinthians 13, verse 9 to 10, where Paul says, For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. So the cessationists have argued that the partial refers to prophecy and tongues and those gifts, and the perfect means, in their interpretation, when Scripture is completed or when the church is fully matured. That's how they are interpreting perfection coming and so once that happens, that imperfect or those miraculous gifts of the Spirit will go away. Now, I actually do believe that the partial there does refer to those gifts like prophecy and other gifts. But the term perfect, look at what Paul says as he continues in verses 11 to 12. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. That is seeming to me a description of Paul of what he means when perfection comes. And that does not sound like what he is saying is when scripture is complete, or when the church is mature, or when the apostolic age is done. That sure sounds to me like he's talking about the second coming of Christ, the return of Jesus. Anyway, um, there's a lot more that could be said about this. Um, my, the purpose of this message today is not to make a defense that the spiritual gifts are still in existence. And so if some of you are really struggling with this and want to talk more about it, I'd be more than glad to dialogue with you on a one-on-one -on -one basis uh, after this message. Okay? The second comment that I simply want to make before we start looking at prophecy is this, that we often use these labels of natural and supernatural. And I want to argue that they probably ought to be avoided, okay? Because I think they actually reflect more of a secular worldview than a biblical worldview, okay? Because typically when we say natural, what we mean is that these are the events that happen when God is just passively sitting by and doing nothing. He's just watching like an observer the events unfold. And so the natural laws are what explains everything. And then supernatural means there are these rare, rare moments when God actually chooses to get involved and a miracle happens or some, something supernatural occurs and that we call supernatural, okay? But that is not the picture that we have of the way that God governs his creation, um, it, the Bible instead shows a picture of a God who is intimately and constantly involved in his creation. There is nothing that we can do apart from his enabling us to do so. Deuteronomy 8, verse 17 to 18. You may say to yourself, my power and the strength of my hands have produced this wealth for me. But remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the ability to produce wealth. And so confirms his covenant, which he swore to your ancestors as it is today. You know, he's calling out their unbelief of saying, listen, whatever happens in life, I made it happen. I did it by my own hands and says, no, not so fast. God is involved in every aspect of your life so that to him alone should you give credit for whatever success and achievement and things that you achieve in this life. Paul affirms that same truth in 1 Corinthians 4, verse 7. What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as though you did not? God is involved in everything in your life. And so to him goes the credit, gives the credit. To him belongs the glory. And so from the biblical point of view, there aren't natural and supernatural gifts even, I would argue, because the truth is all of them, whether it's hospitality or teaching or prophecy or healing, they are all flowing directly from the hand of God by his power. Now, let me say this. Some have chosen, instead of using that supernatural and natural language, to refer to them as miraculous and non-miraculous gifts. Okay? And uh, what they're basically trying to capture there is, yes, okay, there are some gifts like teaching and helps and 
encouragement and stuff, but they are kind of the more usual things that we experience in daily life. But let's be honest here. We don't always experience a miraculous healing or a prophetic word. These are rarer events. And so by that, if we mean by rarer or less common, we refer to them as miraculous, I I think that's fair enough. I I think that's a a fair point to say is that there are clearly some hand expression of the hand of God that we feel more directly and regularly, but other aspects that do strike us as extraordinary. And so what I would argue for all of that is simply to say my conviction is that these gifts, all of them that are described in the New Testament, are still present and to be pursued by God's people. And so we already looked at these passages, 1 Corinthians 14, 1, follow the way of love and eagerly desire gifts of the Spirit, especially prophecy. 1 Thessalonians 5, 19 to 20, do not quench the Spirit, do not treat prophecies with contempt. It is my conviction that these commandments are still live and active to the church to this very day. Um, That we shouldn't just be neutral or open to the gifts, but we should actually actively seek them out in our life. Um, I want to transition then to talking a bit about this picture of prophecy that we see in the New Testament. I, I have confessed to you already that even in as much as I believe this is the biblical position on these miraculous spiritual gifts, I will be the first one to admit I have an uneasiness about them. I feel that I have personally witnessed their abuse, and that abuse sometimes wrecked havoc in churches that I've been a part of, okay? And, and so maybe if I could just summarize it like this, one of my goals today is, is there a way that we can somehow take away a lot of the hysteria, a lot of the shenanigans, a lot of the unbiblical ways in which sometimes these spiritual gifts are practiced and just try to demystify them and present them in a way that we don't elevate them on this pedestal and make them the end-all and be-all of what we're trying to achieve as a church. I do want to credit Sam Storms, who I made reference to last week, uh, for a lot of the teaching on this issue of prophecy because I think what he says is very accurate and I think very helpful for the church. There are many ways that the Holy Spirit can actually direct us. Let me give you a couple examples. A worship leader is leading praise in a church service, and he senses in his spirit that there's a particular line in the song that is really striking home to the congregation as they're singing the song. And sensing that work of the Spirit in the congregation's life, he pauses, and he really drills down that truth to the people in the room, and there's just this really spirit-led moment of encountering God through that worship that everyone senses God is leading it, okay? Another example, there's a father sitting in a sanctuary listening to a sermon, and he feels really cut to the heart. He feels that the Holy Spirit is really speaking something powerfully to him very personally about himself and his family. And so they get home, and he gathers the family around, and he shares with them, this is what God has laid on my heart to share with you. And he speaks to his wife and to his children, and that ends up leading into a very powerful moment for the family, really a watershed moment, a turning point for them with God as a result of this father sensing the leading of the Spirit in that moment of worship, okay? Now, the question is, Were those prophecies? Were those prophecies? And I think if we try to be as technical as we can, what we can say is this. Those may very well be influential moments in which the Holy Spirit is talking to the people of God who are in that posture of listening and receptivity and openness, but I don't think they should accurately be called prophecies. That wasn't prophetic, okay? Maybe a better word to use is just it's a spirit-led conviction or it's illumination, taking a truth in God's word and enlivening it and personally applying it into that person's life. Well, 
That's what Paul may have in mind in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 7. Reflect on what I am saying, for the Lord will give you insight into all of this. Pray on it. Meditate on it. Seek God in it. And somehow that word will come alive to you through the work of the Spirit in your life. Okay? And so those two scenarios I painted for you, I think, sort of fit that paradigm. Okay? This God-given insight to understand a spiritual truth in a very personal way. But it is not prophecy. So then what is prophecy? Well, let's use this as a working definition. Prophecy is a divine revelation of truth that would otherwise be unknowable. It is a divine revelation of truth that otherwise would be unknowable. So let me give you a picture of that in the New Testament. When Jesus encounters this Samaritan woman at the well, he tells her, you have had five husbands, and the man that you are with right now is, in fact, not your husband. Okay? And in response to that, look at what the Samaritan woman says to him in John chapter 4, verse 19. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. A prophet. Look at what Paul says about prophecy in 1 Corinthians 14, verse 24 to 25. But if an unbeliever or an inquirer comes in while everyone is prophesying, they are convicted of sin and are brought under judgment by all as the secrets of their hearts are laid bare. So they will fall down and worship God, exclaiming, God is really among you. Here, Paul is painting a scenario in which a person enters into this service totally unawares and they are harboring a secret sin in their heart that they know nobody else knows about in that room. And yet somehow, through this prophetic gift, that secret is exposed. It is brought out and they say, whoa, how could anyone have known this if it wasn't revealed by God? himself this person could not know it in other words what i'm saying is this prophecy should always always affirm the truth of scripture but here is the thing i do believe prophecy often goes beyond scripture in its specific application to people in very personal ways okay you know, the cessationist argument is that once the Bible was complete, there's no need for prophecy anymore. But prophecy, as we see often displayed in the New Testament, has its own unique ministry in the church in the sense that it is very personal and very specific to a person for whom that message was intended. We see this in the prophetic revelation given to Peter in the story of Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter 5, verse 1 to 4. Now a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit? And have kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land. Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied just to human beings, but to God. Again, this is a revelation of God and a prophetic act to let Peter know what had happened in secret by this couple. Peter could not have known these details unless the Spirit had revealed it to him. Well, what is the purpose of prophetic utterances like this? Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 14, verse 3, but the one who prophesies speaks to people for their strengthening, encouraging, and comfort. Oftentimes, when a prophetic word is given to us that reveals something that we would actually hold as a secret that only I know, only I am aware, and yet somehow it's been revealed to another person, and it must have been through God. There is something so powerful about that experience that says basically this message that God knows, God sees, God understands. And I want to testify to you that I personally have been the recipient of prophecies like that. And some of these happened decades ago, 
And these moments were so vivid and so powerful that I can almost place myself back in that room and remember when that prophetic word was given to me. These revelations can, I think, come in many forms, whether they're a vision or a dream, or it may be just an inner voice or an impression that God gives to someone that enables them to then share it with somebody else. Sam Storms breaks down prophecies into three different elements, which I think is also really helpful. He talks about the elements of a prophecy being, one, the revelation, two, the interpretation, and then three, the application. Okay? Now, revelation is the divine act of God disclosing a truth to someone. That is the actual moment when God just simply lets you know what he wants you to know. That's a purely divine act. Interpretation is our understanding of the meaning of the revelation, meaning what does this mean? what, what, What sense do we make of that prophecy? And then third is the application. How are we supposed to respond to this? What what is the response that God wants from us in light of this prophecy? Now, what we can say is this. The revelation is always infallible because it is God's perfect act and his alone in disclosing a truth to us in the prophetic act. But what we can say also is this. It is possible for us to both misinterpret and misapply that revelation. And that's where the error can get introduced. In other words, God may have spoken the revelation perfectly, but it doesn't mean that we have always heard it perfectly. And the way I want to help you to understand is an example that actually plays out in in actually glorious detail in the book of Acts with the story of Paul uh, being given a prophecy from this prophet in the Old Testament, in the New Testament times, known as Agabus. In Acts chapter 11, verse 27 to 28, we find this first introduction to Agabus. During this time, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them, named Agabus, stood up and through the Spirit predicted that a severe famine would spread over the entire Roman world. This happened during the reign of Claudius. Now, so what establishes that Agabus is recognized in the church as a prophet and that he has a proven track record because anyone can claim to be a prophet, but his prophecies have come true. Okay? There is a certain uh, stamp of, of you know, affirmation that he is a prophet of the Lord. So Agabus reappears then toward the end of the book of Acts. And in Acts chapter 21, verse 10 to 15, this encounter takes place. After we had been there a number of days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. Coming over to us, he took Paul's belt, tied his own hands and feet with it, and said, The Holy Spirit says, In this way the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem will bind the owner of this belt and will hand him over to the Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the people there pleaded with Paul not to go to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, Why are you weeping and breaking my heart? I am ready not only to be bound, but also to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. When he would not be dissuaded, we gave up and said the Lord's will be done. After this, we started on our way up to Jerusalem. So here's the thing. The revelation given to Agabus is a vision of Paul being bound in chains. The interpretation that Agabus gives to that vision is that Paul, if he goes to Jerusalem, is going to be imprisoned and suffer greatly. And so the application that everyone makes as a result of this prophecy is, Paul, please don't go to Jerusalem. This is God's grace to you to tell you what's going to happen, so don't go there because if you do, that's what awaits you. Um, the problem is this. Some of the details of Agabus' prophecy uh, interpreting it was off because this is how the events actually unfold as Luke, Paul's travel companion, records it. In Acts chapter 21, verse 33, the commander came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. Then he asked who he was and what he had done. That commander is referring to the Roman centurion that imprisoned him. And so Agabus said it was the Jews that chained him, 
But actually, it was the Romans who chained him. Agabus also said that the Jews would hand Paul over to the Romans. But that's actually not what happened. The Jews actually wanted to kill Paul. And the Roman centurion stepped in to save Paul so that the Jews couldn't kill him. And then they chained him and took him prisoner. So here is the problem. How do we resolve this discrepancy of what happened in this book of Acts? Well, remember that the prophecy came in the form of a vision. And it may have been that what Agabus saw was Paul chained, surrounded by a bunch of angry Jews and Roman soldiers. That very well is likely what Agabus saw in his vision. And so out of that, though, he assumed wrongly that what that meant was that the Jews bound him and were handing him over to the Romans when, in fact, it was the Romans who tied him up and rescued him from the Jews. What's also interesting about this prophecy is this, that Paul didn't listen to the people who told him, don't go to Jerusalem. He was not persuaded. He said, I'm going to Jerusalem no matter what you guys say. So a disagreement was sparked between Paul and his friends regarding what? The application of this prophecy. They thought that the prophet, prophecy was to warn Paul to save his life. But Paul understood it in a very different way. He thought that this was God telling him, this is what you're about to suffer and to prepare him for what he was about to endure. Because this is what Paul testified in Acts chapter 20, verse 22 to 20, 24. And now compelled by the Spirit, this is not his own intuition. This is the Holy Spirit speaking to him. Now compelled by the Spirit, I am going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. I only know that in every city the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim is to finish the race and complete the task the Lord has given me, the task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. So Paul has already received the conviction through the Spirit that, regard, that regardless of the troubles that await him, he must go to Jerusalem. And that's why in 21.14 it says, when he would not be dissuaded, we gave up and said, the Lord's will be done. It's interesting. This is one of the rare moments when Luke inserts himself in the narrative. And he says, we, meaning I was part of that discussion. I was arguing for Paul not to go to Jerusalem. But when we realized that we were not going to change his mind, what did they do? They basically said, Paul, we'll just pray for you. You are in God's hands. God's will be done on this because we are not in of a similar mind on this prophecy. Okay? So I, I think this actually tells us something very important about prophecy. It is that we have to test prophecy and realize that even if that very well may have been a direct word from God, there needs to be the work of the church coming together as a community to wrestle with that and say, what does this mean? What is the application of this word from God for us? In other words, in God's revelation, it never nullifies the wisdom that he asks of every believer to exercise in wrestling with what it may be, the will of God in that prophetic word given to us. It also shows us that what it requires is prophetic humility. There is no thus saith the Lord here. It is simply believers sharing as they wrestle with a vision given to this man who has shown a past track record of accuracy in the things that he said would come to pass. And so we see this beautiful humility being displayed. We can be wrong in the things that we claim. The other thing that I think this also invites us to recognize is that the truth is a person who utters a prophecy may not automatically sh and should not automatically be assumed as the one that interprets it or applies it to the people that he's saying it to. In fact, when you look, often it's not the case. 
Sam Storms writes in Practicing the Power, simply because you have, had, you have great clarity in the revelation does not mean God intends to enlighten you as to its application. This is one of the most important lessons to learn in the proper exercise of prophecy in the local church. For some reason, those who are the recipient of prophetic revelation struggle to stop once the word has been shared. They feel compelled to interpret and explain and eventually apply the word either to an individual or to an entire group. I'm not suggesting that this should never happen. On occasion, a person will receive both the revelation and the interpretation. But in the majority of instances, it will turn out that God has revealed something to a person but wishes that its interpretation and application be left to others. Okay? That's why in 1 Corinthians 14, 29 to 33, Paul says this, two or three prophets should speak and the others should weigh carefully what is said. And if a revelation comes to someone who is sitting down, the first speaker should stop for you can all prophesy in turn so that everyone may be instructed and encouraged. The spirit of prophets are subject to the control of prophets for God is not a God of disorder, but of peace as is all the congregation of the Lord's people. Even in Paul's day, sometimes when they were doing this kind of stuff, there's a sense in which even in ancient times, it was prophecy was about getting into a moment of spiritual ecstasy where you basically lose control and you start babbling and it's like, oh, stand back, don't bother him. He's, he's being filled with the Lord. There's nothing you could do about this. And Paul says, no, I'll have none of that. The God that we worship is a God of order, not of chaos. And so there needs to be order and wisdom and scripture that infuses all of this. And I think that's such an important principle for us to recognize. What I love about Sam Storm's church is this, is he will allow some people to come forward and testify of a prophecy they've given. If they say something biblical in a very loving way, he corrects them right there. It's not this awkward, embarrassing moment of, oh, geez, you know, like, what is this guy saying? He says, we love you, sister, but what you just said clearly contradicts scripture, and we need to call you out on that because it is the burden of the leadership not to let the people of God be led astray because let's be honest here. If someone says they have received a prophecy, that carries a certain weight and authority that is very hard to resist. And what Paul says is, listen, when you are practicing this gift of prophecy, God may speak to some of you and some of you actually may be more gifted in receiving that word of prophecy, but it must always be tested. It must always be evaluated and seeing what is it that God wants from this? And maybe for some we say, listen, it's just not being affirmed in the rest of us. This is not something that we feel comfortable moving forward with. Let me close with this. What would it look like if ICC were to actually practice this? The first thing that I want to say is this. Um, some of you may be going, okay, so when do the charismatic services start here at ICC? Um, let me be honest here. My worry is not that we're going to go overboard with this. My worry is this message is going to just be a blip on the radar. And frankly, no one is going to really take any of this to heart. Okay? I also want to say this. I don't think this issue should divide us and say, oh, I can't be in this church if we're going to go in these crazy hyper-spiritual ways either. Okay? I don't think anyone can be forced or dragged into this. I think it's, it's something that has to be done willingly as a surrender to God. But I also want to testify to you as your pastor that I have both received words of prophecy that I have given to others and have personally been actually amazed at what was revealed to me in terms of secret things that were very personal to a person. And I have also been the recipient of prophetic words like that in my life. And I can testify to how enriching and strengthening that was to my faith. I'm not ready yet to give an open mic in our service and say, does anyone have a word from the Lord? But this is what I would love to see at ICC. I would first of all love to see many of us praying that prayer, taking God at his word and saying, God, I want these gifts. I don't want to be afraid of them. I want you to give me these gifts so that I can strengthen the church. I think that's where it has to start. 
earnestly seeking these gifts. And then the second thing I think is this, is I think it would make more sense for us to see what it might look like if it happens more in small group settings, like our community group or somewhere where there is trust built there. There is relationship there because let's be honest here, you are going to go out on a limb if you're going to share something like that, you know? And it can be terrifying. I know that there have been moments where I felt that I received a prophetic word. It's just I didn't have the guts to share it with the person. Because I, I was like, I can't say that to that person. There is this fear that if we don't bat a thousand, then you're going to be called a false prophet. That is not a false prophet. A false prophet is someone that says Jesus is not Lord, okay? There's a difference between a fallible prophecy given in terms of our interpretation and those kind of things and a false prophet, okay? And I'm saying none of this language of the Lord tell me to tell you, okay? I don't want to hear that kind of language at ICC. But it could look something like this. In humility, I have been praying for you. And I don't know, God has just been impressing on my heart this picture when I pray for you. And I don't know what to make of it, but could I just share it with you? And I'll just leave it with you to pray on it and wrestle with that. And that, that's going to take a risk. That's going to feel kind of frightening. One of the things actually I do that I've shared with some of you is whenever I sense a word like that from the Lord, I actually record it on my iPhone in my voice recorder app. And then I listen to it, and I listen to it again, and I pray through it. I never share with someone on a first pass. And the truth is, sometimes when I pray on it, I go, I don't know where that came from, but I don't have the conviction anymore. And what a crazy thought that was. I don't know what that was. But other times, the more I listen to it and pray through it, the stronger that conviction goes, that it's almost like butterflies in my stomach, and it's just this feeling like God is just weighing me down, saying, you really need to share this with this person. And in those moments, I have acted in obedience and shared certain things. And I think there should be a safe space that we create where even for small group leaders, yes, we pray, yes, we do the inductive Bible study, but could there also be moments where as you're closing the time, just saying, I don't know, does anyone have a word from the Lord that you would like to share from us? And again, it's not thus saith the Lord, but this is just what God has impressed on my heart that I want to share with you. And I wonder what God may begin to do in our community if we take a little risk like that and we don't have to elevate that as, oh, are you saying this is equal with Scripture and that this is infallible? No, we can dismantle a lot of those type of facetious arguments and say, but what would it look like for a perfect God to speak to an imperfect people and yet nevertheless somehow there can be something incredibly powerful and enriching from that. Um, just, I think I might have shared this with you, but let me just share this one thing and I'll close with this. Is I had this best friend in high school named Carl, and I loved the guy to death. Of all my best friends, he was my bestest, bestest friend. I guess we have that term BFF now, right? Uh, now, and we didn't have that term back then in the 80s, but. Um, and I wanted him to be saved so badly. And I would witness to him and witness to him. But despite us having so much in common and caring so much for us, anytime we talked about faith, he hated it. He's like, do you always have to talk about Jesus? Just get it through your head. I will never believe it. It's because his mom and dad were just, you know, vehement atheists who hated the church. I remember in our eighth grade graduation, there was a prayer at that convocation and her, I remember seeing his mom stand up like this and just stare at everyone because she was so upset a prayer was being uttered during that ceremony. And in that summer after our, he moved away our senior year to Montana so I didn't get to finish off our high school together. And we wrote letters to each other back and forth. During that summer, I was praying for him and something really powerful happened in that prayer was I sensed God spoke to me and said, you can be comforted because Carl will be saved. He will be saved. So don't let your heart be troubled anymore. It was such a powerful moment when I felt God speak to me. Start my freshman year at U of I, and in the very first week of school, I get a call from Carl. 
and he's at UC Irvine. And he says, uh, Steve, uh, you're not going to believe this, but I became a believer. And he said, I moved into this dorm, and I swear to God, every single person on my floor was a Christian. <laughs> and they were saying the exact same things that you said to me all those times. And I realized this must be God, and I finally gave in <laughs> and surrendered. And he said, I just wanted to call you because I thought you should know that I became a follower of Jesus. There are these kind of moments that I think God wants to give to us. But as, we, as I think I've said earlier, though, I think there's a lot of fear in us that just wants to push this away and say, I just don't want to touch that stuff. It's so messy, so fuzzy. I don't, I don't get it. And I wonder if there's a, even the mystery of that is something that we can embrace and say, God, just my hands are open to you. I want to receive whatever you want to pour into me. Equip me with your gifts so that I can be a blessing to the church. Let's pray. I'm going to come to the table in just a moment here. But again, I'll give you an opportunity to just pray a bit to the Lord. If any of you feel really uncomfortable thinking along these lines, uh, I get it. Like I said, I feel in many ways uh, torn inside because in as much as I've experienced some very powerful moments of the Holy Spirit's gifts, I've also actually experienced a lot of negative collateral damage from it. But I think that's not God's fault. It's the way that the church has misused the gifts and even abused them in certain ways that really are not biblical and Christ-honoring. But I wonder if there might be a way that we here at ICC could somehow make a way forward to be just open to the works of the Spirit and not just be theologically open, but hungry for it and seeking it in our lives. Saying, God, I do have some fear in my heart, but I want to receive whatever you want to pour into me and give to me. Let me just give you a moment to pray that prayer and then we'll come to the Lord's table.